0: What's up everyone from the Desolation Radio with Dan and You right. How's things?
1: Good, how are you? It's a Sunday. It is a Sunday and we're, I was going to say working, we're not really working. <laughs> I'm back in work tomorrow, so after a week off. Nice. I was hoping I was going to die over the week, but that hasn't happened
0: unfortunately. I like how you've um, you've started talking about really depressing things just straight off the bat for every episode. Just
1: Yeah, I, I, I thought that perhaps we were missing that a lot with... Lately, the extremely like nihilists and things. So I thought I just I catch a sort of bring be, it down. Yeah.
0: When um, nate has got this thing. If you don't, uh, it, there's a there's a classic Mike Doyle who's like a South Wales comedian. Bit he also to say that his grandmother used to ring her friends up and say, "Well, guess who's dead?" Because it was just such a big big deal to talk about in Wales, like who, someone who's, de- who's dead. But a, I say it's Nathan. Someone's died. The first thing he says is, "Oh, lucky bastard." <laughs> So cheer fighting.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ironic, of course. Of course. I, I,
0: I'm going All right. Um, okay, so we're... Optimistic nihilism. <laughs> we're absolutely delighted to be joined today by Dr. Simon Brooks. Simon is an af- associate professor, the professor sorry, uh, at the Morgan Academy, Swansea University. He's also a Playa's Town Councillor, chair of Port Town Council, um, a big Port Town fan as well. Um, and we're here today to discuss his 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 amazing book why wales never was
1: i always went to lift it up then to show that <laughs> yeah. welcome simon how
0: are you doing
2: thanks yeah doing great uh, it's good to be in cardiff <laughs> yeah nice to come all the way from the northwest uh
0: yes just, just, just to do a f- podcast as well That's
2: well fun. actually into a wedding i don't want to you know uh, to, we, we have, have gravity
0: it. behind us now <laughs> absolutely
2: you know i would uh, do 500 miles and 500 <laughs> miles more to do a podcast with you. So, no, it's a great privilege to be here.
0: Brilliant. Right. So just um, briefly introduce the book. Um, Some some praise from none other than Hugh Williams, our our good friend of the show. For me, Simon's book represents the most challenging and significant work on Wales since devolution. Um, The book represents a fascinating combination of social history, intellectual history, and political theory that perhaps only a figure such as Brooks could produce. It is the, no, I was going to say, it's the detriment of Welsh academia, but he's not in one of our universities. Yeah. Hugh here, Edwards
1: um, also gave it some praise as well on the back. He it's not a comfortable read, but I earn loads of money, so I don't mind.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it says, it's not a comfortable read, but essential for anyone who wants to grasp the curious state of Wales today. In its relentlessly challenging narrative, the author forces us to rethink our understanding of the forces that have shaped modern Welsh life. Can we hold non-conformist liberal values responsible for the language crisis? and our patchy notions of Welsh nationhood. Simon Brooks makes a very convincing case. Is
1: Hugh Edwards a liberal, do you think?
0: He just sounds like what I would think a 19th century liberal would have sounded like. Yeah. Yeah, a lovely sort of Carmarthenshire, um, serious accent. Um, and yeah, that's funny. <laughs> thing. He's been very supportive to me with this book, to be fair to him. Is he? I have to, I
2: have that, I have to, uh, you know, Street. step in on his behalf. We're, we're all f- full of interesting internal contradictions, I think. Absolutely. As yeah. people. Uh, we can, we're a bit sour because... Uh, contain
1: multitudes. Yeah, he, uh, he, he criticised the sound levels on the podcast, didn't
0: he? But he did a nice emoji after it was suggested. It was, it was uh, a bit of a wink. A bit, wink. Of a bit of banter from Hugh, thanks yeah. very much. And also he pledged to give us loads of money, didn't he? So He did, didn't he? Yeah. Oh. Um, the other interesting introduction uh, from Hugh... P. Williams said, Simon Brooks has a tendency to make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but he says, I should probably add to this comment, But this comment does not relate to him as an individual. No. Indeed, he's a remarkably entertaining irreverent given the intensity of his prose and his unforgiving political directness. Okay. So we've kind of gone straight into the, uh, the book that we've missed at Wales this week. We'll do Wales this week at the end. Yeah. Um, okay, Simon, please just give us a summary. Talk us through the book, you know, your central arguments.
2: Well, the, the book is called Why Wales Never Was, and that really is um, uh, what it is about. Mm. Um, it takes as its starting point to question of why a national movement didn't develop in Wales in the 19th century. You would have expected that to happen. This was happening in nationalisms across Europe, including in Western Europe. And Wales, of course, was a very distinctive society at the time. Uh, most people spoke Welsh in Wales. Uh, a lot of people were nonconformists, um, but it was also a very modern society. Uh, we had a railway system. We had a press. People were literate. We had the cradle, or one of the cradles, of the industrial revolution. And of course, Marxist historians offered up the theory that nationality and nationalism is a creation of modernity and modernism so if you were to read a a, a writer like hobbsbaum you would tend to take it for granted almost but if indeed you know we had an industrial working class early in the 19th century if indeed we had a, a degree of um uh, ethnic stratification within the united kingdom which meant we were apart linguistically and ethnically and religiously then we should have had a strong national movement but that never happened uh, Wales, Wales is almost unique in that sense in an industrial uh, Western society. But that didn't happen. That has consequences. It's created a Wales we live in today, which is a very British Wales. Uh, it's created a Wales in which the Welsh language has disappeared outside the northwest as a community language. It's created a Wales um, which is deeply conservative, I think, with a small C, and also. Foe-liberal, perhaps. the thesis of my book, really, uh, asks why that was. And the conclusion it comes to is is that it's because of the nature of Welsh nationalism with liberalism and Welsh identity with liberalism. It argues that the British state was uniquely liberal in that period. I.e., the British state didn't really oppress the Welsh in the classic... You know, it would in, in terms, if you read, you know, you know, good sociologists, you can make the case, but in terms of what you might call cartoon history, you know, mm. the, the, the Welsh not image of Wales is not correct.
0: Yeah.
2: In essence, what the British state said was that it was a liberal state. They weren't going to racially discriminate against the Welsh. The Welsh could take part in the British state. Uh, they could have the fruits of imperialism, but all they had to do in order to access that was to learn English, which they did. They'd be pleased to learn English, of course, and they would be emancipated as as individuals. Uh, That was the line sold. That didn't appeal to the Welsh working class as much as that. There's considerable evidence, I think, that the Welsh working class was actually quite nationalistic, which not properly documented in my view, but in terms of the Welsh middle class, they, they took that on board, they believed that, they became part of the British project, And the British state offered individual emancipation to Welsh men in particular, not to Welsh women perhaps, but to Welsh men. But as part of that emancipation, uh, the whole idea of a communitarian basis to Welsh society was collapsed. I mean after that I go into political theory and I argue that a lot of concepts we have in Wales today, like the civic, for example, inclusivity, concepts like this, which are classical post-evolution concepts, very liberal concepts, are in fact a projection and a continuation of that 19th century um liberal discourse by which we think that we can get rid of, you know, all our background ethnicity and our class background and all the rest of it. Uh, and create some sort of uh, you know a liberal dreamland where we can all be equal and, and have equal access to the social goods of society and they and argue that this is the reason why still today uh, welsh nationalism doesn't work and isn't successful because the lines which welsh nationalism pushes are actually at a very deep level the lines of our integration into the british state. so classic example of that would be progressive politics which at a superficial level, I agree with. But the whole concept of progressive politics is largely based upon the idea that one can abolish a communitarian identity and gain for private individuals who are emancipated access to social goods within the British state. So that's basically what it's about. And of course, we see the Welsh National Movement now still very, very deeply um involved in that sort of politics. It's very similar to what happened at the end of the 19th century, I think, with movements like Cymru I mean, the book finishes off then, uh, trying to make a comparison between the politics of the late 19th century and this period of history, and in essence argues that Welsh nationalism will have to take a different route if it is to succeed. Fantastic,
0: overview. Um, So... What you've, what you've said is um, about the nature of the British state, and you, you talked about just um, a, this cartoony idea of uh, Wales being sort of classically oppressed, which has been put forward by people like Michael Hector and things like that. So you're basically saying that the British state was clever in a way, really. sort of um, That's a classic sort of definition of hegemony, isn't it? Sort of, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a quality of rule, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So it's ruling through consent. and yeah. So what happens under conditions of hegemony is basically subaltern or... Oppressed classes or regional, you know, places like Wales, they actively buy into these sort of dominant narratives. So, how then would you characterise this? You know, the the the, the Welsh nonconformist liberals of the time, and and what it, what did they do? You know, how did they buy into this Britishness, and and what what are the effects of that?
2: Well, first thing to say is I think your analysis is is correct. I do believe in Hechter's theory of internal colonialism. I think that spatial analysis is correct, but I also, you know, your 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 sort of Gramscian view that there was some sort of hegemony thrown over this is is correct too. And what happened with liberalism as an ideology was that it formed a regional movement rather than a nationalist movement, which was based upon ethnic apartness of the Welsh people it didn't really create a Welsh nation as such but it did believe that the Welsh were an an ethnic group uh, expressed largely through religion rather than language and it was able to define the Welsh as an ethnic group within constructs of wider Britishness I mean Daniel Williams has argued quite has written quite a bit about this how in many ways the idea of Welsh ethnic identity depended very strongly upon Britishness. Because the Welsh could then be seen as being, you know, as being a separate ethnic group in comparison with others, you know, specifically the English, of course. So that's that's what what's, that's what they did, the Liberals, is they, they they had this religious system and this ideological system by which by the mechanism of learning the English language they could, through their religion, keep this sense of ethnic apartness, but could also access the goods of empire, of course. And you see this, you know, with Lloyd Lloyd George. Lloyd George would be the classic case of this. You see this happening for the best part of 60, 70 years, from the 1860s up to 19, to 1922. And I argue, therefore, that this, this liberalism, this progressive politics, this sort of soft politics of the left, could very easily be, um, 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 you know, swallowed up, taken up by Britishness. Ironically, Welsh conservatism was a little bit different, because we did have a Welsh conservative tradition. I write about that there. Uh, not, not, not the Tories. I say it's important to emphasise that we're not talking about imperial Toryism. We're talking about small C conservatives. Very much in the tradition of a, of a philosopher like uh, like Herder, uh, the philosopher writing yeah. a lot about, about about language. I'm thinking of people like Lady Thanover, for example. They had a vision of of uh, a, 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 a cultural base to Welsh identity, which was actually very difficult to uh, to incum- to, uh, to put to actually hold within the British state. And in fact, you could argue that the Blue Books is an attempt to attack. That form of Welsh conservatism and actually creates the environment by which this Welsh liberalism is created. So part of the central thesis of the book is actually one of how progressive politics and reactive politics works within what you might call an anti-colonial context, by which I argue that um, the anti-colonial viewpoint makes the conservative standpoint different because of where it's placed in the political sphere so to be conservative in wales with a small c not to be a tory in wales Mm. to be a tory has always been wrong okay but to be a conservative with a small wales with a small c right could in certain historical circumstances me and me you were actually opposing Mm. um views of British hegemony as expressed by the metaphor progressive politics yeah. and actually be a, a standpoint. So it's quite a complicated period going on there. And I think this is very similar, very, very similar to um the form that devolution takes today, which is basically it's a regional identity. Uh it's quite a well regarded regional identity within, you know, the Welsh the Welsh middle classes in Wales it doesn't really challenge Britishness at all uh, and its relationship with uh, minorities in Wales. I mean, minorities in terms of power, you know, uh, the working class, people who live a long way from the capital up in the north and the west, Welsh speakers and so forth, I think is a little bit
0: a little bit difficult, uh, uh, you know, and uh, problematic around the edges. That's really interesting. Um, first, I mean, there's a number of things I want to sort of tease out a bit more there. The first one is... Um... You said about the Welsh Knot and the Treason of the the Blue Books and this is something that we've talked about in our previous episodes about, um, you know, just to remind people who are listening, it's this uh, basic idea that sort of uh, British or English uh, school inspectors looking for reasons why the Welsh education system was failing essentially claimed that it was because of the Welsh language, that the Welsh language was sort of regressive and was holding the Welsh nation back and they sort of recommended like an English, everything be standardized was an English As form. well,
1: they expanded as well to like the Welsh way of life or like kind of um, internal re- uh, reasons of Welshness that, it was, like, wasn't like solely Like a yeah. character de- de- deficit. But, yeah. but what you're
0: saying Simon is that the the classic reading of that is almost like, you know, the English imposing that on the Welsh and the Welsh sort of being horrified. Yeah, yeah. Horrified and, yeah, you know, yeah. But,
2: no, I I, I, I mean, I, I disagree with the classic nationalist um, analysis I think is wrong. I think it's a myth because, I, you know, I'm a nationalist myself, you know, I'm a applied counsellor. So don't get me wrong as, as regards this. But I think that in order to hold a nationalist narrative, we've read things into the past which, which aren't true. And when one looks, you know, at the response to the blue books... Um, the Welsh middle class wanted their children to learn English. Okay, mm. they didn't regard their children being taught English as some form of oppression. They wanted it. They wanted more of it. In fact, I think what was difficult with the blue books was actually the suggestion that they didn't want that. Mm. They regarded it as a form of humiliation because it was because it was these 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 you know people these commissioners sent from London. You know, like they were sent to to India and other places to do similar things. These commissioners. Sent from London, then depending depending upon one source, these Anglicans, right, mm. who were involved in you know in a, with a civil war with nonconformists at the time to go around basically to trash nonconformists, and so so the the reaction of the, of the Welsh nonconformist establishment in fact was to take on board everything about language. Mm. They accepted every single thing about language, and they put themselves on a path to Anglicise Wales, and they wanted to Anglicise Wales very deeply, but to actually claim that non-conformists could be as good imperialists as any Anglican ever was, and so they did that specifically uh, through metaphors of, for example, you know, sexuality, you know, this this idea, it comes up in the Blue Books a lot, that that the Welsh, you know, were 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 somehow um, uh, you know se- sexually free and having sex before <laughs> marriage and all this sort of horrible deviance. stuff you know sexual deviance you know it's you know, it's quite 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 a Freudian quite a Freudian mm. bit of work you know maybe it's projection like the person writer is just really repressed mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's very interesting it's a very interesting bit of, of sexual terrorism actually because we no,
1: love
2: <laughs> damn sexy Welsh yeah damn sexy Welsh but if you actually look, right, there's, there's got this historian, this guy in the period, Ian Gwynedd, who's a sort of a, sort of a social commentator, sort of half-historian guy. He actually does, you know, he actually does a survey in Wales to prove that the Welsh are not more sexually promiscuous than, the, you know, than people from Yorkshire, for example. <laughs> so, so, Yorkshire, <laughs> so, so this is the thing about the blue books, right, is that the Welsh response to the blue books um Actually accepts the British narrative in its entirety, and it says, "We're actually better Brits than the
0: Brits." Mm. <laughs> that's what it actually says. It's a, it's an astonishing thing. Yeah. So I guess the dominant narrative of Welsh history uh, has basically has these liberal nonconformists as these sort of proud yeah. heroes, essentially, heroes. who are yeah. the you know the safeguard in the Welsh yeah. culture and things like that. Um, part of that I would say comes from like the caricature of Welsh history that's put forward by people like Dysmith. Smith, and yeah. it's just kind of because they don't speak Welsh there's almost like this uh, you know the Welsh Welsh speakers in sort of Dysmith's history version of Welsh history are just this other this block they're not actually looked at internally no, or what they did no, it's just no. like just po- positioned as this other you know who they can sort of contrast this heroic south Wales sort of proletariat against but yeah what they actually did isn't ever teased out so what you're saying it's actually very similar to you know the, the pamphlet that we've been talking about you know by Rob Griffiths and um Gareth Miles, I mean, they said in that, you know, that they said the Welsh liberal nonconformists were, what was that line, it's like proud, servile Britishers, yeah. essentially. So is that, it's just st- almost the same argument that they were buying into this, Yeah, the petty buying, in, buying into America. empire? I
2: don't know if they call them servile, because they would see it as emancipation, you see. That's, that's the essential bit. It's through richness. Yeah, is, 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 I, and again, I say this as a nationalist, Right. Uh, to understand how Britishness works, I think the 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 as 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 na- nationalists, I, I don't think that somebody like me should say uh, that there's a false consciousness in that sense amongst the Welsh people because yeah. that's not going to get anywhere. Um, for these people, Britishness was a form of true emancipation. Mm. Okay, and I think it was a form of true emancip- emancipation because it wasn't English. Because they were British, yeah. they could actually remain ethnically Welsh. But what they had to give up was anything which was dangerous to the British states. Yeah. And the thing that was really dangerous to the British states, which was, uh, use a you know, um, uh, particular phrase, what was radically other about Wales in that period, was the Welsh language. Mm. And what was particularly radically other about Wales was that the fact that you had Welsh monoglots. Yeah. So you had over half the population who couldn't speak or you know, understand English. So these people were so hugely different. You know, they were almost like, um, uh, almost like Catholicism in Ireland, but without that, you know, tradition yeah. of, of political violence behind it. Yeah. They had to be gotten rid of. But they weren't got, they weren't, they weren't gotten rid of by, by being shot or anything. They were gotten rid of by the education system, you know, yeah. did in a gradual way. So I think that, I think that is important for us, um, um, if you want to see a, f- a proper future for Wales. I think Gwyn Alf writes about that. He says that the Welsh have always been a British people. And I think it's very important that we don't
0: create um, false narratives which actually don't work, you know? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I've argued, I mean, I've argued in my book and hopefully in a forthcoming article is about um, this idea of Britishness, which is being put forward, I think, by people like Gwynvar Evans and stuff. Uh, I think it was wrong. He's wrong. Basically saying that Britishness is this... um, is synonymous with Englishness. It's being imposed on the Welsh, you know, sort of... Um, but I said that is completely wrong because Britishness is something that... Well, I mean, the, the the beauty, if you want to call it that, of Britishness is precisely the fact that it's a very flexible and accommodating identity. Yeah, It's yeah, yeah. capable of accommodating all forms of sort of subaltern, i.e. Welsh, uh, Scottish, Irish. Um, it's flexible. It's flexible. It can accommodate all things. I mean, Linda Colley, this historian, has written... Extensively on what is the nature of Britishness, and and today Britishness is things like progressive multiculturalism. Yeah, but it's also a martial identity about war, things like that. It's all thing is the, the amazing thing about Britishness is it's capable of accommodating so many groups, diverse groups within it, including Welshness, including the Welsh language. But what you just said about Welsh speakers, almost monoglot Welsh speakers being other, um, I think is interesting because um, it kind of brings us back to this. The pr- almost <laughs> in the broad scheme of things, the progressive nature of small C conservatives. Yep. And this is something that people, um, liberals, I would say liberal imperialists today, don't grasp. So it's a bit of a stretch, but sort of hew me out. So when we talk about the... F- it's about their function, isn't it, in the in the sort of the broad scheme of history and um, an empire. So today, for example, people would say, you know, so especially people on the left, would say they support... Um, like it has, they've supported in the past jihadist groups, for example, groups like Hezbollah, things like that. They've supported like the Iraqi resistance against the American army, the British army, um, and people would say, you know, liberal, I would say liberal imperialists or imperialists on the left would say, oh, this is terrible. You know, these people are, you know, they're backwards, they're reactionary, they, you know, they're Islamists and things like that. And then people would say, well, they are, but in terms of their function in the world, they are the only people sort of opposing sort of American hegemony and it was the same, you know, with his in Lebanon and things like that. So coming not saying that's what the Welsh blank, you know, Welsh speakers were like, but in the broad scheme of the British Empire, people who were small C Conservatives, with their sort of nationalism, which is a anti progressive, anti liberal nationalism, were almost <laughs> serving the same function, regardless of their internal beliefs, the fact that they are sort of against the british state and against
2: yeah i I think i think that yeah this is quite similar to today i mean one of the lessons which has come out of both brexit i think trump and also corbyn doing very well is that liberalism can be attacked from different positions of course Uh, and part of the politics of we are seeing today is the politics of anti-liberalism being played out in different ways I think somebody's analysis is incorrect. I mean, personally, I I, I do think that um, uh, you know violence, Islamism is incorrect. But I also think that Trumpism is incorrect, and I think that Farage's is 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 incorrect. I mean, philosophically, because I don't really believe in liberalism as um, you know a world view. Philosophically, of course, you have to work out how can you um, ethically. Oppose liberalism. So, for me, as a Welsh speaker, for example, living in North West Wales, um, that would be uh, questions around um, how, for example, would one uh, behave towards you know very large anglophone immigration into Gwynedd, you know.
0: Hot potato. Yeah. yeah, it's a
2: hot. It's a hot potato. But if you if we want to you know serious serious you know about about society, you have to tackle these things. But Absolutely. if you were tackling these things, then you would do two things. It would have to be ethical, right? Yeah. But it would also have to tell the truth, you know. Um, so it'd be an anti-liberal argument, which was also ethical, you know, non-racist, you know. So uh, I don't want to go over that uh, after that today because that's a that's a different that's a different discussion. But in this period. I don't think the Welsh had any concept, any philosophical idea, or couldn't see anything outside this liberal worldview being offered to them. And in Europe, it was a little bit different. In Europe, these ideas were being attacked by various other groups, often by conservatives, and also by liberals who were because liberalism is always based upon one ethnic group establishing its own hegemony, projecting it, mm. and then claiming that everything which they now call civic is in fact neutral, where in fact, of course, it's just under the umbrella of their own personal power, you know. So when you when you get into, when you look at uh, Central Europe, when, when certain um, ethnic groups or national groups become quite strong, like the Czechs, for example, they, of course... Claim they are liberals themselves, but projected in a very Czech way. So you know, so so to, to be good, to be a good Czech liberal, then you can you you know you have to learn Czech because if you learn Czech, you can take part in society fully and all the rest of it and all the rest of it. You know, in Wales that never happened. A form of liberalism which which was taken on board was uh, an Anglo Welsh one, in which the civic was defined as really Anglo, I, and I don't mean Anglo linguistically i mean in all senses of the word so that really is how in my view the welsh nation collapsed uh, there was a pushback then you know by by the socialist movement um in the 20th century uh, against that and welsh liberalism subse- subsequently collapsed but if you look at, at at welsh socialism in that period it it, it Presented itself as being universalist, of course, which is very similar to to liberalism. You know, believe in the brotherhood, brotherhood of men. But when you look quite closely uh, about movement as well, like liberalism, it's got all the disadvantages of universalism. You know, it existed within the British state. Its attitudes towards minorities, you know, women, sexual minorities, racial minorities. Think of the attitude of the National Union of Seamen towards black men, you know, in in Cardiff. Um, Its attitudes towards the Welsh language was absolutely appalling. And that bigotry within socialism existed in Wales, really, up until the 1990s. If we're if we're honest about it, you know. I
0: think it's still there. To be honest.
2: It's still there, bubbling away under the surface, you know. But things are better now than they were, mm. I think. But you know, so we unfortunately we've had in Wales, in my view, two universalist um, forms of politics, which have defined themselves um, as universalist but which in reality have actually been in part, not wholly, but in part, projections of hegemony from other places. But they've called themselves universalist and civic and inclusive in order
0: to hide that. So the first wave, British Liberalism. The second wave, British Labourism, essentially. Yes. Um, Some interesting questions that come out to consider... we don't want to keep going back to you know socialism versus people and pamphlet, but it, it's but it's very no. They, trying to uh, get the numbers. But up the the, 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 pa- the parallels are very interesting. Um, the argument's is very interesting. So, what socialism Welsh people? are it, it looks at these interesting moments in time and in the broad historical sort of you know of historical sweep of Welsh development. I mean, so first I want to get your opinion, Simon, on you know, so Rob Griffiths and Gareth Miles sort of say Saunders Lewis that small sea conservatism, yeah. Which, uh, like, you know, which was the sort of the founding foundation of Pike Cymru. Yeah, they sort of say that that was detrimental in the to the development of Wales because it alienated yeah uh, the the nascent you know industrial working class. So, what's your take on the function, I guess, of Saunders Lewis and the start of this sort of conservative Welsh national. Well,
2: I think he, I think he was a I think he was a good thing, um, and I'll tell you why because it's it's a very easy argument to say. Um, that Welsh nationalism should have come from the soft left. Mm. Yeah, but the point is that the soft left had the chance to do this in the 1880s and the 1890s, and they didn't. So this idea that if Saunders-Lewis wasn't there, that somehow the soft left would have done this in the 1920s and the 1930s or the 1940s or 50s, is, seems to me to be completely bonkers, because because they were part of... This British, this British, you know, they would never have got the movement off the ground. So So, they were tied up with, like, the British... Yeah, of course, of course, of course, and in different ways. They would never have got the movement off the ground. They were never never the space to do it. There would have been individuals on the left who would have been in favour of, you know, greater Welsh autonomy, of of course. But they would never have got an independent, you know, an autonomous political group off the ground. So that is Saunders-Lewis's revolutionary role in Welsh politics as he did that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, once he actually set the thing up, obviously you can't appeal to a, a left-leaning nation through, you know, um, through, through right-wing politics in that sense. I mean, again, I come, I come back to something a, a, a fr- uh, my friend Daniel Williams has said. He's actually talked a little bit about Farage and Corbyn in, in, in this context, I, I regard Corbyn as being a quite Cromwellian English nationalist figure, right? You could make the argument, however, that that sort of Cromwellian English nationalist left would never have got off the ground without some sort of radical break from somewhere. And Farage was the nasty guy who provided the radical break, you know? And then, and then, and then the left take, take over there and push the thing forward. So I, I, we've, we've, we've sworn as now. I, I've got a, I, have got i you know, I, I there's arguments in favour. And against. But one thing I would say definitely 100% is that this argument which is pushed around that um, if he hadn't have been there, Mm. that somebody would have turned up and established Plaid Cymru in the 1920s from a left viewpoint is absolute madness. I think the only people who would have been able to do it would have been
0: communists. That's actually exactly what I was going to ask So. What do you think about this? Uh, you know, this alternative history, whereby, because we know that the Communist Party was far more progressive than the Labour Party when it came to yeah, yeah. the national question, which is obviously in line with what the Comintern sort of recommended at the time. And there were a lot of communists who were very pro you know, Welsh Parliament things like that. Do you think it would be would have been feasible for the, there to have been, you know, a national nationalist left wing movement in South Wales you know, with the Communist Party in the vanguard or? or
2: I haven't looked about in depth. In depth, I mean, part of the problem with the attitude of communism towards stateless nations, of course, is days to use Engels' classic phrase, they believed in historic stateless nations and non-historic stateless nations. So for them, you know, a, a historic stateless nation would have been Poland or Ireland mm. or Atapush somewhere like Scotland. Yeah. Uh but when they got around to you know the Slovenes and uh you know the yeah. Welsh and the Latvians and all the all these you know irrelevant groupings sort of hanging around at the edges you know, they sort of took the view that um, uh, they actually took a view very similar to to somebody like uh, like Mill you know they took the view that well really the best revolutionary thing to do in somewhere like the South west coalfield would just to subsume them. Mm. And use the use for coalfield as one of the motors of a British push towards you know revolution and that's 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 what they did. So um, yeah, I mean, I think if any group apart from Saunders would have would have had the potential to to launch a Welsh nationalist movement, it would have been the communists. But again, we have to look at history as it was, and we have to ask the case, ask why. Well why didn't that happen? Because clearly it didn't happen. And the reality is there is that the only person who did launch that movement was Saunders Lewis. Mm. Um,
0: it's worth, I think, unpacking... We, we talk about liberalism a lot, and you said about Eric Hobsbawm, sort of a famous Marxist historian, um, who kind of embodies this attitude towards small nations, doesn't he, in many ways? Yeah, he does. Um, almost like the Welsh... It's it. So basically when liberalism developed... Um, As Simon's just said, it basically grew out of these, it had deeply sort of nationalistic assumptions underpinning it, Um, and when it sort of spread out through, if it was, whether it be France, whether it be in the UK, um, there's this assumption that liberal universal values about emancipation and progressivism and rationalism, things like that, enlightenment values basically, um, were sort of universal and non-nationalist, but opposed to those were sort of small, as you said, peripheral nations like, you know, the Welsh, even like the Bretons, the Basques, things like that. And liberalism could sort of demonise these nations because they didn't speak French, they didn't speak English. And and as you've said brilliantly in your late work on sort of civic stuff in uh, civic identity in post-evolution Wales, once something can be claimed to be non-progressive or... That's it, it's game um, over. If are liberal then it's uh, well they're savages, essentially they're reactionary, you know, and it's time to it's time to dismiss them, and that's essentially what has happened. Um alright, so we're gonna move forward I think a bit now. So Sonas Lewis is set up like Cymru, um, and we're marching into the twentieth century. What um what's got what what goes wrong then with, with Welsh national with the Welsh national movement?
2: Well the movement is set up the Second World War is not a help, you know. You know, uh, it doesn't really help a decade of fascism and then a war, and you know that's not a that's not a that's not a good thing. So it doesn't really get going then until the sixties. Um, what happens in the sixties is that Welsh nationalism succeeds uh, in the periphery of Wales, in Welsh-speaking communities. It takes over. It takes over in a very Gramscian sense which is that it takes over the popular culture mm. at every single level in Welsh-speaking communities. You know, it really is the Sinn Féin of, of Wales. Absolutely. You know, it's like the Communist Party in, 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 in Mardy or somewhere, you know, under, under Horner. You know, it really takes over. Yeah. Supply Cymru really take over uh, the north and the west completely and wholly, and they have a go into valleys, but don't quite get there. And they don't really get anywhere, anywhere else. And that's where we're at um and i think there's lessons there for nationalists today because the national the nationalists or certainly the Plaid Cymru um analysis has been that the way out of our predicament is through what they call civic nationalism and what they mean by civic nationalism of course is that we're all equal in in wales as citizens wherever we're from, you know, and I was born and brought up in London, so I've got a certain amount of sympathy with this argument. And of course, I I agree with that, right? However, however, I I don't think that uh, this concept of uh, a civic identity without a cultural or identity base to it in any way whatsoever... Is strong enough to underpin a national movement and therefore I think that where it's gone wrong actually is in the failure to underpin the national movement not with race okay we've got no interest in race nor with ethnicity I've got no interest in ethnicity either in terms of nationalism or building up a national movement but in terms of culture in essence what happened is that Plaid Cymru succeeded in leading a cultural revolution in Welsh speaking Wales and they failed in mm-hmm. Anglophone Wales and that's why we live in the you know in a society we do now you know
0: so what um <coughs> it's interesting to think about you know these the heady days of you know the 60s and things yeah, like that in yeah. Plaid Cymru because one of the interesting narratives that you know I certainly internalized and I always sort Of grew up thinking about was you know, I, th- I still think about uh Welsh speaking areas as being somehow you know, backwards, basically, for a better word, and and almost outside, almost outside sort of popular culture. But as you said, you know, in the time in the 60s, you know, the, the radical popular culture, as you said, in um in Wales, in Welsh speaking communities, is there, you know, there's civil disobedience. Um, and if you look, if you look at um, what's really interesting about the um well-speaking activists in the sort of 60s and 70s as you said Simon it's like you look at those activists in Ireland you know in, in Wales they've all got you know velvet and trousers long hair you know they're, and they're radical people and there's there's music um and other pop culture sort of alongside this isn't there so that's so that helped sort of make it
2: yeah i, I think i think that the way forward for um for us is to is to build popular culture in both languages so, for example, the work you're doing here with Desolation Radio, and you know, is exactly the sort of thing which will underpin, <coughs> um, you know, a, a, nas- a national revival. What play have we, you know, facing this? What you might call no, it's not a cultural divide. That's too strong. It's 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 um, you know a, a a a spectrum rather than a divide. But the way Plaid have tried to get over this 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 cultural spectrum in Wales is by abolishing the idea of culture, right? And that's not going to work. That's not going to work, right? It's not going to get us anywhere. And in fact, it, I think this is one of the things which has led to the disaster of Brexit, because I think that if Plaid Cymru hadn't spent the past fifteen or twenty years pushing civic nationalism, and actually had a form of you know was pushing um, you know a Welsh cultural identity, mm. then I don't think it would have been so easy for UKIP and other people just to march into the South Wales valleys as they did, I mean send out all these, you know, these rays of British identity, you know, right wing racist British identity in the ways they did. I mean for people just to go out and vote for, for yeah. Brexit, you know? Because one of the interesting things about Brexit actually is if you if you go up to Gwyneth, where you've got you know, really poor communities which are very similar to Valleys communities yeah. in terms of their poverty, right? Places like Leina Fustiniag and Penrind Deidreith and, yeah. you know, you know, bits of Carnarvon and, and, if you look at these places you actually find that there was a vote there to stay in the European Union. Yeah. And I don't think that's because they're Welsh speaking. I think that's because a counterculture has been created there, which has been strong enough to withstand messages from outside. I think you see something similar in Liverpool, you know. With with, yeah. with you know, so the question is, why hasn't that been created in what Dice Smith would call South Wales? Yeah,
0: it's a, you it's a, it's a real shock to me because I thought you know uh, South Wales is this. Uh radical yeah well exactly you know exactly well that's the myth isn't it i mean exactly. hell, like
1: everyone's leaned on like there's this radical way waiting to be awoken but it's not there i think it's just like you said earlier, small c conservatism
2: but i reckon that if if if, if plai had uh, uh and you know it's not just Ply's fault obviously it's it's the fault of you know of of good people in the labour party as well you know if if this civic stuff was a mistake, right? You know, I, I, and I believe this 100% today, a national project built upon putting up buildings in Cardiff Bay and centralising stuff in Cardiff Bay and everybody who has a decent job, uh, you know, living in, 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 in Canton or where well, I've lived myself, so any a nice place, I want to kick it, I've lived there myself, okay? But, you know, that sort of, that sort of politics, right? Uh, and nothing ever gets beyond the M4 corridor, you know. And when we put stuff into valleys, we put it in the Treforis Industrial Park, which is by the M4 and not in Aberdeer. And we never put anything you know, up in the northwest or the north, you know. This sort of politics is doomed to fail.
0: But if we go back to the 60s, you said, and applied successfully, dominated Gwynedd and things like that, and there's this popular sort of Welsh language... Um, Counterculture, and as you said, the, resi- the residual impact of that is still there. And as you said, it's it's kind of in it's this counterculture which has almost inoculated these places from yeah, Britishness, yeah, essentially. Yeah. But how, in the sixties, for example, in South Wales, where Ply did make some gains, how would they have gone about forming a strong, you know, Welsh identity outside the sort of common sense of the British Labour movement? So you know, there's all there's always been this like. I w- what I would say like Arms Park nationalism isn't there in the valleys um, which is Welsh you know st- strongly Welsh but always ultimately underpinned by sort of Britishness um, how would they have, I mean how would they have done it you know would it have been promote, to promote the Welsh language in, in South Wales or would it have just been to try to carve out a distinct Welsh identity in the English language in South Wales
2: well what has happened is it's been a bit of both of course that's that's you know the, the small Signs of that, for example, Welsh medium schools. Mm. It's been a bit of both. I think it would have been difficult in the 60s and, and the 70s to do it fully fully because of the nature of embedded industrial communities, which were still there. But what's happened since then, of course, is that those have become post-industrial communities. So the more interesting question to my mind is why this hasn't happened since devolution. Interesting. Rather than why it didn't happen in the sixties and the seventies. I you know I can understand in a, in because my father's from Penrakiba in McCunnan Valley, which mm. is a pit village. I can understand and my grandfather actually was the Labour councillor for Penrakiber on Glamorgan Council for a long time. So I you know I can understand in 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 a village like that how you know interplay between um, the NUM, the Labour Party, yeah. local activists <laughs> although Ply did in fact win you either, um, you know, you can, you can understand how, how that would have been more difficult. But the question, I think, is why that hasn't happened in the past 20 years. And I think that we've spent too much time running after the project of debating the devolution of minor powers from London to Cardiff Bay and building buildings in Cardiff Bay and I don't think it's enough
0: no it, it, I would say it's absolutely not enough but I mean what I've argued and what I, I strongly believe is that devolution was never meant to you know quote unquote work it was always meant to just it was just this sock you know like you know, Scott, you know Blair decided oh well Scotland has to have devolution we have to modernise you know the sort of British state um, and if you read the memoirs of Andrew Ronesley like New Labour Blair sort of said you know well you know do we really have to give it to Wales because he said you know they they just seem to be anti politics um, <laughs> and, and and you know given the resources of the yes campaign in 1997 you know it was a cross party campaign had a million pounds thrown at it um, the no campaign was completely disorganised had absolutely no money. Um, the S yes campaign barely won, like barely, barely won. It's was like
1: 0.5%, percent, wasn't it? The, yeah, it was a it was, it was a
0: pathetic turnout. You know, um, contrast that with Scotland again, but it's especially in the seventies as well, where like they originally
1: run the S yes campaign, across got slaughtered, didn't they? For
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, but, but but the the interesting thing about what happened, so but that's by the by, isn't it? As you say, Sam, because devolution did happen. Yeah. Um, but firstly, I mean, do you think Applied, I, I still think Applied kind of misunderstand or misunderstood what devolution was all about. Um, they've almost got this relentlessly optimistic view of, well, of what's happened and what can be achieved.
2: Applied in a difficult place because they're, doing two, they're trying to do two things at the same time. They're trying to be an opposition party yeah. in the Assembly, which obviously means attacking the government. Yeah. But paradoxically, they don't want to attack the government too hard. Because if they, they attack the
0: government too hard, it takes a shine off devolution. And David Ailes Thomas will leave. Think, <laughs> because it's not... Yeah, because it's this consensual sort of Team Wales thing, isn't it? And like, the devolution is meant to be this challenging, you know, reinvigorating Welsh democracy. And as you said, yeah, sort of oppositional, um, aggressive sort of anti-government politics doesn't doesn't play well.
2: Well, it's it's, always, it's the debate, in fact, we've implied at the moment. There's nothing secret about this. You can follow the debate on Twitter and other places. You know, it's between people who really think the should be both working quite closely with Labour. Mm. Uh, um, the reason for that is, you know, post-Brexit, national crisis, um, you know, government and national unity and all the rest of it. Um, and then you have others who are saying, no, this is just gonna repeat the mistakes of the past. Uh, we can't have a one-party state here forever. We have to take, you know, we have to take these people out. So this, this is an, an, an internal debate. It's made more difficult then, I think, by the fact that Plaid then actually see themselves at a UK level as being part of the Corbynist movement as well. Mm. So what Plaid tried to do was to um, present themselves as being the Corbynist opposition in Wales to Welsh Labour. Uh, but obviously, they got into a bit of sticky territory in the general election, when the Welsh electorate decided that the best way to promote Corbyn in Wales was to vote for Corbyn, of course, and the ply vote, you know. I mean, you take out Kerry Dickion, which was you know a good win, but um, in a unique constituency. You know, out, outside apart from that, to be honest, the ply vote collapsed. And the students win there in Kerry as well. Exactly, exactly, you know. So, um, the ply vote collapsed, and... um. I think it comes back to the central thesis of the book, which is that a national movement has to put itself outside these universalist ideologies in one way or another. It can still be very progressive in terms of its social policy, right? Mm. So it can still oppose the bedroom tax. It can still oppose um, wars on the international stage. You know, it it can still believe in social justice but it can't sign up to these universalist ideologies which exist within Britain, because at the moment it does that, then people say, well, we'll actually vote for the universalist movement which is being presented to us, which, of course, is a fake one, because it's British, you know, it's not universalist, but that's not how the voter sees it. And that's what we saw in the recent general election.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of of consideration for the voter as well. I think um, sometimes people may project a lot Onto like the average, but it would yeah, just be, yeah, like, almost decide on the
2: day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, these things are these things are difficult. Like, but I, I, I think that um, uh, I, I think the plaid have to ask themselves how is it that the most moderate national movement in the UK has per- performed significantly worse than the more radical national movements, i.e. the SNP and Sinn Fein.
0: And you think obviously because they're not as steeped in culture you know, a difference.
2: I don't think there's enough difference there, no.
0: So um I mean that is it's it's it's, it's what would you say, I mean, you said outside these univers this universalist um what were these universalist values and things like that 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 sort of the mainstream parties in the UK subscribe to that Plight would have to sort of you know issue? Or jettison, would you say, or
2: well the first thing we would have to jettison would be the idea that it is specifically there or if called upon to to prop up a Labour government. That's 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 the that's that's the essential political thing, right? Um if that's a message from and people will just vote Labour. I mean there's no other point. I mean ironically the only people then who will vote Plaid will be people in places like where I live in on Merionydd who will be voting Plaid because they think it's good for local cultural identity, you know? So that's the first thing. So I don't think it's actually um, a problem in terms of the policies which Plaid have. I've got, I've got no problems whatsoever with uh, the policies which Plaid prevent, uh, no, 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 present, you know? And they can be actually very similar to Corbynite policies in terms of social justice. The problem is, is the political positioning. And at the end of the 19th century, the left in Wales, people like Lloyd George and uh, and the like, chose to go into a strategic alliance via the Liberal Party with these pan-British radicals. And the result was was that Wales was subsumed as you know, as uh, in terms of its own politics, or it became a regional expression of it. The Welsh Labour Party has a similar relationship, I think, to British politics. and So therefore, for Plaid then to repeat that mistake through the concept of a progressive alliance is, to my mind, disastrous political positioning what it has to do. I mean, it it can't, it can't be like Sinn Fein because that's a different history. But it's it's very interesting to know how movements like you know um, Sinn Fein uh, and the SNP they have they have they don't partake quite in the same rhetoric. I mean, sometimes the SNP give out the line, you know, but none of us truly believe that the SNP is there to be part of a pan-British progressive alliance. It isn't, you know. So, probably need to toughen up and harden up. Harden up, I think. At a, at a British level. They need to return to cultural nationalism, I think. Uh, we need to return, they need to realize that the Labour Party is more of a long-term threat to them than the Conservative Party, I think. I think you have to be honest about that and say there might be times in the future where Plaid would have to form a coalition with Tories in order to uh, to defeat Labour in Wales. I don't think you can ignore that because of the, um, the mathematics of politics in Wales. And, uh, there might be a short-term, short-term hit in some parts of Wales, but I think in the, in the long term, there's no, there's no, the, Ply can't be, um, you know, uh, um, Labour light, you know, a Welsh Labour light. There's, there's no, there's no room for, for, for that, you know, at all. And I think it is interesting where Ply has done well outside Welsh-speaking Wales. Paradoxically, in Leanne Wood's own constituency, the Rhondda, and also with Neil McAvoy's campaigning in Cardiff West, both of those politicians have actually tapped into quite strong feelings of local identity so Welsh at a very local level mm. um, and I think Clyde needs to to recognize that
0: you know and build on that so it's not so, it's what you're saying it's not so much the, the value universal values per se it's more about how their the attitudes and strategy and mm. and a way of how you look at politics essentially and almost like a more Cynic, not cynical, but more real politic, and um...
2: yeah, it's just, tra- it's just trans- uh, the, the job of a national movement is 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 t- to uh, deliver a particular uh, national agenda, and it has to involve itself in transactional politics with other players within the British state. And we like to attack the DUP and make fun of the DUP, but you know, but the DUP have actually done for the unionist population of the north of Ireland what a national movement should do. You know they've gone into alliance with a big British party to protect what they regard as being their red lines, you know? So it's uh, almost unapologetic. Oh, it's unapologetic. I don't care less, you know? And it's typical of the lazy way uh, um, uh, people think about them. They say, well, the DUP are going to come here and they're really about knocking gay rights here or abortion rights. The DUP have got no interest whatsoever in affecting, uh, you know, you know uh, things like that in, in a... In a on, on the mainland of Britain at all, you know. All they want is to deliver their 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 agenda, you know, uh, at at a national for them, you know, regional national level in 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 their interpretation of of um, the North of Ireland. The SNP is exactly the same in Scotland, you know. The SNP is the same in Scotland, um, and I don't think the is strong enough there.
0: So. Even little things implied are interesting. You know, for example, so for example, I, I always didn't like the rebrand of Plaid, like from the, you know the tree barn with a yeah. dragon to you know the sort of daffodil. It kind of struck me as a bit a labor laboury. Yeah. Um, but why is it then? Why do you think Plaid have moved away from a, a, a more cultural nationalism, which is sort of more, which is unap- unapologetically Welsh? Um,
2: I think because it got sucked in by the rhetoric of devolution. Because a lot of the rhetoric of devolution is actually new Labour stuff, Blairite stuff, which came over. So, in the first part of the devolution, you know, the, the key things about devolution, the, the civic, okay? Inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Key words like this. All Blairite terms from the new Labour, Blairite government. What they meant was that um, this sort of neoliberal politics delivers for everybody. It includes everybody. So that was Welsh Labour politics built upon blairism. Mm. And then Roger Morgan made it successful then by putting in clear red water between himself and London. It's a very clever move and made Welsh Labour successful. Plyde bought into these new Labour slogans, inclusivity, the civic, and so forth. And they forgot that a national movement requires difference from the other in one way or another. And they didn't want to tackle that because they got very embarrassed about the idea that once one started to talk about Welsh difference, this could spill over into things around Welsh ethnic difference, for example, which were reactive and wholly to be condemned. And I agree with that condemnation, okay? This is culture cultural difference is what I'm talking about, not about Um, ethnic difference at all. But they bought in, they bought into this, to this system. And quite simply, when this system was challenged by UKIP, Farage, Brexit, in deprived communities, last year, it wasn't strong
0: enough. It, why, do you think because it's sort of this nebulous... Uh... Because it's
2: nebulous, I don't think there's, there's enough of the base to it. It wasn't strong enough. And I think we have to... You know, we've we got one of two analyses. Either we can we can write off the people in the valleys as being deeply racist, you know? They, they actually believe in misracist racist politics. Or we can say that we've failed to develop uh, a form of cultural identity a form of counterculture which is strong enough to withstand it and i think the better analysis would be to save a second
0: so this comes back to what really the question is what welshness is now in post-evolution wales and yeah certainly what is welshness for yeah. these people that have voted for yeah. yeah and things like that in the valleys and um what's interesting i mean people talk about civic nationalism in wales or civic identity you can't have a civic identity without for example strong political institutions you can't have a civic identity without an education system that no. teaches about Wales? No. You, you know, because these are things, civic identity is something that's meant to be, you know, quote-unquote, non-cultural yeah. nationalism, yeah. right? So it's, you know, it's rooted in values such as, you know, so if, let's say you grew up in Scotland, hypothetically, you've gone to, um, you grew up in a Scottish education system, you you know about Scottish history, you know about the separate Scottish legal system. There are sort of non, if you want, non-cultural elements about Scotland and Scottishness, which you can sort of, Make you Scottish or whatever, but there aren't any equivalent things like that in Wales, are there? But that's
1: that's the whole paradox of it, isn't it? You can't get any ground in to create them because you haven't got them in the first place. Well,
0: yeah. you could. I mean, you can create
2: it through popular culture, of course. Yeah. Football, you know, yeah. could be a bokeh interest in football. I think that's helped a yeah. lot. You know, uh, there are ways of there are ways of 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 doing this, but I think this is yeah after Brexit, right? When obviously London is going to try and keep a lot of these European powers, um, I don't think Scotland will go now. I think Scotland will remain, which paradoxically is actually probably quite a good thing for us in Wales in the long term. Mm. Uh, but I think it's it's obvious we need, I think, to return to um, to popular culture. Mm. We have to. We this we we. I think we're in. Um, Devolution phase two. I think devolution phase one, right? And the politics of devolution and the language of devolution and the keywords of devolution died on the day that Wales voted to leave the European Union. Interesting. I think that's it, right? Uh, If we pretend we can go back to um, Cardiff Bayism, right? Okay? Uh, And claiming that Wales is inclusive, and that's good for everybody right i'm thinking that when we build uh you know a building in 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 uh, you know we, we we put another quango somewhere in cardiff this is good for people in hollyhead right if we continue along this path right that is a fundamental mistake
0: um i mean to what extent do you think that i mean for, for those of us you know we're not from cardiff but we are in the we're in the sort of, uh, what's the, in the World Spatial Plan, the Cardiff City Network, mm. you know, of, uh, you know, Porth and M4, the Cardiff, and you don't leave that network. But as you said, there's a whole, people who live outside Cardiff um, would be f- forgiven for thinking, well, you know, what on earth has the evolution done? Um, but what Brexit showed me was that there are people, definitely people within plight, um, and well, are within the Welsh establishment, I should say, who live a very, very comfortable middle-class life in Pontcanna and things like that, who generally think that devolution has been fantastic for everyone in Wales, who have absolutely no idea what goes on outside Cardiff. And it is a bubble, I would say, similar to London. But what, what, what are the practical practical solutions, you know, other than sort of building up rail networks? and. Um...
2: I, I think we have to... I mean, what, what we don't want to do with devolution is just recreate the British state in Wales, right? So what, what I think we're doing at the moment is we're creating a, a mini-me London in Cardiff, in mm. Cardiff Bay in particular. I think you're right. I think it employs people, lovely people, personal friends of mine, okay, who who live in places like Canton and Pontacaná just going basically from one job to another in yeah. terms of career buildings. Nothing wrong with that. Everybody wants a career, but that's what, they, well, that's what they're doing, you know. I think you could use Hechter's internal colonialism theory to describe entirely the relationship of, say, somewhere like Gwynedd with Cardiff at the moment. Mm. What Gwynedd does at the moment is it exports raw product, its young people, down to Cardiff to feed the Welsh state in Cardiff. It gets very little back. It's a very similar relationship now, I think, between the Northwest and Cardiff within the Welsh state as exists between the south of Italy and the Italian state or the Highlands in Scotland and the Central Belt. Support for devolution is being held up in these places because of a sense of Welshness. Okay, but if this carries on for donkey's years, and all that comes out of devolution is more and more wealth going down to Cardiff, and people feeling that their own communities are losing more and more power, there will, at some point, come a breaking point. You know, and we have to look at what happened in the Brexit, you know, Brexit referendum and realise that that theoretical danger is there. So what we need to do, not, it's not just a responsibility for but it's for the Labour government too, because I think the Labour government wants the to succeed as well. What the Labour government needs to do is to realise this, and I think it needs to begin by moving a significant number of public bodies out of Cardiff. It needs to move some to the, to the real valleys, right? not to Forest Industrial Park, yeah. but to Ystrad yeah, and Aberdeen and places like this, it needs to move a lot of them up to north wales because what's happening at the moment is that you have these little branch offices all over wales right mm-hmm. but everybody who wants a proper career in any field feels they have to be in cardiff uh, and we, we need to uh, we need to uh, to make sure that uh, people who live their entire lives in places like you know Hollywell or colwyn bay or canarvon or haverford west actually feel that the Welsh state exists in their communities as yeah. well, right? So that's what, that's what they need to do. That's the big, big project. Because what, what, what the Brexit vote showed, right, was that there was deep, deep satis- dissatisfaction uh, in a lot of places in Wales, outside Cardiff. Uh, it's hidden in Gwynedd because of the Welsh language vote, okay? Mm. But the, the same disf- dissatisfaction is there. Yeah. And if we just ignore it and plough on, right, there is a risk. That, that dis- dissatisfaction expressed through the metaphor of Brexit will reappear in four or five years' time after exiting the European Union through the metaphor of the Welsh Assembly and devolution, at which point we will be in trouble, right? Serious trouble, and it's not going to be sorted out by somebody making a speech, you know the day before the vote on the on you know. Or on or, or on some UK or Conservative-sponsored um, referendum on the abolition of the Welsh Assembly, so we, we need to sort this out now and start, um, you know, seriously looking at structures of the Welsh state, and actually, you know, putting it out and bedding it down and, and nailing it
0: into real communities in Wales. It's brilliant that you've talked about this. I mean, coming, I think it really helps coming from Brechin and coming from places where you know and and places which have always been, let's face it, just hostile towards Welsh cultural stuff, towards devolution and things like that, because I I read all these academic papers, and it's basically saying, like, oh, devolution is now settled will of the people, you know, people who are actually really pro the Assembly, they trust the Assembly, things like that.
1: and no, I know those of people who want to abolish
0: it. Like. And, you know, the Welsh you know, they abolish the Welsh Assembly party got, what, 40,000 votes, I think, in the last uh, Assembly elections? Um, and there is a massive danger of... This could be it for Wales in many ways. You know, the yeah,
2: Welsh yeah. Assembly could be. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, legally can it be in. Well, I, the risk, the risk for. I mean, the risk for us is, is quite simple: is that we, we exit the European Union. So then people start splashing around looking for um, who to blame, mm.
0: because obviously the economic paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Because is it'll
2: right. be worse, of course, of course. You know, our you know um, uh, the, the valleys will still be deeply deprived uh you know rural wales is going to go into collapse yep. you know uh for so yeah farming and yeah airbus will have disappeared you yeah, know far yeah. away yeah <laughs> you know hollyhead with a lost you know you, you can you complete disaster right so people are then going to be going to be uh uh churning uh, around looking for somebody to blame we're going to have the daily mail pumping out propaganda it's
0: already started with the Welsh
2: yeah. language yeah yeah Pop- pumping out propaganda so what are we going to do about it? You know, and um, hiding in bunkers in Cardiff Bay is not helpful.
0: Do you honestly think that? The, I mean, I, I'm people call me a sort of conspiracy theorist and a cynic or whatever. I generally don't think the Welsh Labour government. I generally don't think people give a shit about stuff like that. I don't think they. I think they probably understand that it could happen, but I personally don't. think I, that I, they, I don't think I, that they care. I think I've got,
2: I, I've got more sympathy. I, actually, I think there is an SNP element in the Welsh Labour Party. That is. Yeah, but it's very strongly pro-devolution. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people there, a lot of people there who are quite um you know, will just take whatever power structures is thrust before them, you know. Yeah. But you know, although I disagree with them, that you know, there are obviously a lot of people and at a ministerial level too, within Welsh Labour who who want devolution to succeed. Now Cardwin Jones for all his faults, right? would want the national project in one way or another to succeed, you know, in according to his own view of it, right? But I I I I, I do worry sometimes, you know, I just I don't know I, I look at this from the Northwest of course, you know, where um which is a very particular way to to, to look at it. But um I just I just feel that at all levels uh within popular culture within government at all levels, we need to think of ideas now to embed Welshness in different ways and to embed the Welsh state and make sure that different communities in Wales feel they have a stake in it. Because I think the, the weather could be very stormy, you know?
0: What is your actual prognosis then, 20 years down the line? W- what
2: do I think will happen?
1: Yeah. yeah, what Mad Max is it more likely to be like, you know, Fury Road, Road
0: Warriors <laughs> But, I mean, you know, there's there's two options on there that sort of been given for Wales, I guess, post Brexit. The first one is this idea of Wangland, uh-huh. uh, that the LA Times or whatever it was wrote and said, you know, Wales could very well yeah. be absorbed into England um, of colonisation or Yorkshireisation or whatever you want to call it, that Wales just becomes this quaint um, sort of tourist destination with no, you know, and, that, and that's it. And the other alternative has been sort of uh, marked out as being, you know, independence, you know, applied to sort of belatedly become more vocal I would say in their support for independence you know sort of 30 years too late probably but nonetheless it is there. Well it's
2: difficult isn't it because you're asking me to say things which would be different <laughs> to what I actually want to happen you know and I don't want to undermine what I think will happen I mean I'm a member of the S mm.
0: Um
2: so I hope that happens um, I, I mean there's a possibility the assembly could be abolished okay mm. I I think it's a possibility rather than a probability at the moment, but I think we need to think strategically about how to defend it. I talked about that already I think the worst case scenario in many ways would be that we end up with an emancipated assembly in Cardiff with this weak nebulous civic identity going on with um uh, you know. A middling middle class in Cardiff, sort of, you know, middling along on their wages of 35, 40, 45, 50 a year, you know. Very, yeah, they're very, very happily enjoying life, uh, whilst other people just, you know, sort of feel impotent on the edges and nothing much changes. And uh, what we need to do in politics. Is to make sure that that dystopian vision doesn't happen. What's your What's your prediction, Dave?
1: Um Alright, oh, know. I, I, it's funny you should say about the um, people voting to abolish the Welsh Assembly or vote against devolution because so I thought that might happen, and then I said it to someone who like kind of smacked it down. I was like, mm.
2: But well, people don't want to discuss it because they fear that if we discuss it, we'll actually oh kick no, off a debate, I mean, you know? As, yeah,
1: as if that would, like, there's more of a case, like, if that would ever happen. But as, as you can see, like, I know people in work who, and um, other people who actively hate the Welsh Assembly, have no interest in devolution. I mean, I think the perhaps maybe the, the problem with this kind of culture like we're part of is, it is, to an extent, quite an echo chamber. And then the outside of that is very, very different. With people don't really care at all about Welsh politics or politics in general. And as you kind of hinted at, if those institutions were abolished, it wouldn't really be a second thought to them after voting.
0: I mean, I have, I have to say, I have every sympathy with someone who would say, "I want to abolish the Welsh Assembly." I mean, apart from it, obviously, this ideological thing—you know, I'm sort of pro Welsh independence, but. I remember going through I was going through Hansard the other day, um, and there was a Kinnock Neil Kinnock sort of speech, and obviously I'm not a fan of Kinnock, but at all. But he was saying you know like the Welsh Assembly, if it is becomes a sort of talking shop, all it'll do is just muddy the waters. It people will be confused and won't care what it does. Um, and you start thinking, well, you know what? I mean, really, what's it done apart from give the people to the people who said it's just going to be an a talking shop, which achieves sort of nothing? You can sort of see, well, all right, well. That has come to pass, really. Um, what has it done for you know the areas outside Cardiff? Very little. But the, the, the reason I'm cynical about the future world is because no one listens, and that's what is got, the Cardiff city region is going to be a, an economic disaster, in my opinion. Um, there's no, there's absolutely no debate in Wales. It's just this dominant. You know, there's Mark. You got uh, Martin Jones and people like that writing amazing critical stuff about, well, you know, actually city region, city regions sort of don't work regardless. You've got the Western Mail and Wales online just being uncritical cheerleaders for government policy, for flawed economic thinking. People have said, you know, for years and years, people were saying Brexit's going to happen if this doesn't change, no one listens to it. You know, instead you just get these idiot, and it, so it's the idiot pundit class I listen to, not just in Wales, but, you know, across the UK, and that is in terms of like the economic paradigm, that's in terms of I mean, for example, let's say we wanted to do, embed more of a a Welsh culture in Wales. Um, I've been talking at the moment about, you know, my research is about uh, political education in Wales, no one knows what the Assembly does. The solutions to that will be introducing civics classes into Welsh schools, I think, you know, teaching about what the Welsh Assembly does, but also teaching kids Welsh history. I can tell you now that that will be systematically opposed by Welsh Labour who will say this is nationalistic to teach Welsh history. Um, We don't need Welsh civic education. And there was work done on this. So basically what happened in Scotland when the new voting system came in 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 1999 or whatever it was, after the Scottish Parliament was introduced, um, and there was a big discussion in Scotland about explaining there was its single transferable vote they've got up in Scotland. Um, So basically um, there was a... Wave of political education you know, the, so the scottish government said right well we need to work. we need to basically tell people how their votes are going to work in the new scottish parliament because obviously you can't have people not knowing how like lists work and how the complicated vote system works. we need to do it so there was a big campaign for it then midway through the campaign someone in scottish labour worked out that oh actually if we basically they said if we explain how this vote's going to work um that the it could really eat into the scottish labour vote because people might Give more the votes of uh, the SNP. The campaign for political education was promptly dropped. It disappeared because there was a clash between political. the, The benefits of political education for the society was deemed to be a threat to Scottish Labour's control of Scotland. So they actually did away with it. And I can guarantee you now, if like. Welsh Labour voters are are the least likely to know who controls what in Wales. So all the stats, ICM stats from 2014, Welsh Labour voters are less likely to know that Welsh Labour controls the NHS. They're less likely to know that Welsh Labour controls the education system. I honestly, genuinely, hand on heart, think that Welsh Labour think that is brilliant because they get the best of both worlds. And I genuinely think that they will be the major roadblock in any campaign to try to sort of invigorate the Welsh... Distinct Welsh culture. That's just my take, and I, I, I can see, I can see completely see the the, absor- the reabsorption of Wales entirely into the British state. Um, in the long, you know, history's long, isn't it? And if you look at the devolution experiment, I honestly don't see why in a hundred years people look back and Wales is just exactly the same as Cornwall. And there's, some, you know, there's a Welsh football team, there's a Welsh rugby team. Because there's lots of ways to abolish the assembly.
2: I mean, one way to do it is to do it without actually saying you're doing it, like I mean, part of that is the European Union now transferring powers back to London, which which is bad for the assembly. But the other way to do it is, I mean, if you if if a future government were to decide to introduce regional government yeah. uh, to various parts of England, you know, this has already happened in many ways in terms of you know pushing the idea of city regions in various parts of England. Um, then one would abolish the Welsh National Institution, not by getting rid of it, but just by making sure that it had similar powers to the Assembly of the West Midlands, for example. So there's a hundred different ways to do it. The best defence for the Welsh Assembly, of course, is the idea that people feel Welsh and therefore they want to keep the Assembly because the Assembly is Welsh. But that then requires people in the assembly to understand that and to realize therefore that just um, chirping on about, you know, this Cardiff Bay bubble lifestyle does not
0: really help in terms of that. Right. We're going to wrap up now. On a high note. On a nice nice high note. Um, Simon, thank you so much for coming on. It's been- That was excellent. Interesting amazingly interesting educational informative very bleak <laughs> yeah. which is good it's been a standard um, episode and hopefully we'll do I <laughs> know and hope, and hopefully, but hopefully we'll have another you know hopefully we'll come on again soon and we'll talk more about uh, things like football um, yeah what, football. What, what, about football what is to be done as well you know there's sort of these solutions because we can just start working towards the active solutions right? where,
1: where the best place to bury gold is <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: basically um, right Simon has his custom Are there any? Is there anyone you'd like to give a shout out to?
2: No, it's been great. Thanks for the invitation, (laughs) and I think you're doing sterling work. You know, shout
0: out to us. It's you
2: you know, it's a little bit of the Basque Country in Catalonia, and uh, you know, Scotland in Wales. Doing it yourself. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think that this is the way forward. What you're doing, and what even Morgan Jones is doing on the web with his. You know? Nation.cumery. Nation.cumery. That is exactly the sort of stuff which which we have to develop. The vanguard. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. That's, that's how you create a popular culture, which creates the Welshness, which will actually underpin the institutions.
0: I'll uh, a brief shout-out to uh, Arvon Jones, uh, sort of the first of many public climb-downs or non-apologies that we're going to do. So, basically, like, Arvon is uh, the sort of... Um, how do you police commissioner for north yeah wales? he is the police commissioner for north wales but he's also a, a renegade police mm-hmm. commissioner so he's a very radical bloke he has got some really um, I don't like the
1: way you do it but you got yeah. the job done
0: really interesting um, yeah really interesting views on like sort of drugs policy which really sort of mark him out as a radical um, and we really want to get arvin on the show but obviously cannibal <laughs> arvin obviously within um, within the first you know i think arvin followed us like 2 days ago and then saw the the work experience kid, you know, just kept coming on. We keep giving him different chances, and, and each time, you know. so the work experience kid kept saying like, "A cab, a cab, a cab," you know. Well, like, like, yeah, to be fair to him, thought Twitter, all cats are beautiful. Yeah, but what it actually means is all cops are bastards. And, oh, uh, so you know. Arvin has obviously taken exceptions to that. Um, what I, I mean, he basically said you should remove it. Um, what I will say is, you know, no, <laughs> we won't remove it um, because it's what it's what we believe. Um, so if we we got a. Uh, done interesting episodes on the nature of the police, and we want to get Arvin on to talk about it. Um, what I will say is that you know I will concede that Arvin was an ex policeman, and obviously there are some nice cops. So that is the that's a climb down, but I will not remove this because it's a core. These are these are the cornerstones of Desolation Radio uh, being sort of bleak, um, still not loving police. <laughs> yeah,
1: and having limited to no swearing.
0: Yeah, because our <laughs> three we cornerstones that a, we are founded on. Keep it on. clean, but. Um, but Arvind, come on, We want to, you're an interesting guy. You know, follow us again, Arvind, please. <laughs> um, we can change. We, uh, yeah, so that's it. So come on. Um, but also, yeah, thank, shout out to family and friends as usual.
1: Cool. Uh, shout out to Kurt Russell and Josh Brolin. I watched Sicario. It's um, good, isn't it? Sicario's so good. And Josh Brolin is in a lot of films, I've noticed.
0: Delta going to Mexico, taking names.
1: Yeah. So I thought, um, what's his name? Benicio, Benicio yeah, Del is amazing in it as Very well.
0: good, isn't it? Very good. I'll see Dunkirk tonight as well. Are you going to? Heady dose of uh, British, nationalism. British nationalism. Oh, yeah.
1: apparently is quite good. Oh, yeah. And
0: they'll hate each other at the end. Oh, nice. Um, okay, so I think, is it? we This may be the end of this season.
1: Yeah, it's not going to the end. <laughs> it's not going the That's it. We've had a good run. Yeah. Um, Thanks for I so we'll
0: have our summer break and then we'll come back reinvigorated again with a new round of. Uh, either
1: more reinvigorated and more depressed.
0: Yeah, either way. bets now. Right. Thanks listen, guys. Speak to you soon. All right. Bye.
1: Hear me, Lumpy Space Princess. I will avoid declaring war on the entirety of Lumpy Space
2: ruled by your parents if you apologize to me immediately.
0: I'm sorry.
2: I'm sorry, you're so stupid. Wow!
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs>